This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight we talk the many myths of addiction and alcohol use disorder. We also talk about vaginal health, desire, arousal, and the sexless marriage. There's a theme here. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. So the first doses of Pfizer's BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine have arrived here in Canada, which is great news for so many people. And and the effectiveness or the efficacy, according to the clinical trials, is up in around 95%, which is unheard of. They were expecting it to be about 80%. Yet I still get messages on um, through my website, MaureenMcGrath.com or GetCleopatra.com, um, such as Bill Gates caught on video admitting vaccine will change your DNA. DNA forever. Do you believe that? Will you get the vaccine? Uh, can I ask you that question, Mike? I, I, first, I want to say this. I will get the vaccine, okay? Oh, yeah, I definitely will. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm probably a little nervous about it just because we don't know everything about it, but I trust in the in the science. Yeah, and- it's, it's messenger RNA. It's new technology. It's really yeah. combining technology and biology. And, and, uh, and so it actually uh, helps your uh, body, your um, physiology to be your own vaccine. That's effectively how it works. And so um, they have tested like 60, 70,000 mm-hmm. people, which is a robust study, very rigorous. And uh, some people are having some side effects, and I am going to be talking about that. But with anything, you get side effects. But, the, you know, do the risks outweigh the benefits? Are you one of those anti-maskers out there? Give me a call. The number to call is one 399 You know, vaccines have changed the world. Uh, for many people, measles, the polio vaccine. And this particular vaccine, the one from Pfizer and Moderna, they're in line with the, or they're akin to the measles vaccine, which which pretty much has been obliterated until people become anti-vaxxers and then measles returns. But, um, you know, this uh, we see how our lives have changed and uh, tremendously. And even though we have the vaccine, it doesn't necessarily mean that... Uh, things are going to change very rapidly. We're probably looking at three quarters of a year before we get back to not the bedroom, but the restaurants and the movie theaters and shopping like we used to know it. But it looks like we are in for mask wearing for a, a little bit of time. According to Dr. Anthony Fauci, um, the uh, we will this pandemic will continue to disrupt our daily life. And we need about 75% to 85% of people to receive the vaccine for Canada or the U.S. to reach herd immunity and stop the spread of the virus. Now, we have these two uh, vaccine candidates that are have been released and, and the uh, doses have been delivered to the U.S. and Canada as well, which is very exciting for a lot of people. Some of the provinces will start vaccinating people in long-term care homes and others have chosen to vaccinate healthcare workers, especially those at the bedside, the acute care workers, um, and uh, those people who are on the front lines. And they are not just nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists. They are also the uh, housekeepers and the people who are in food service. And and so there are so many people in that chain of healthcare delivery that, that actually allows 
this medicine uh, to be delivered to you, that, that allows the care to, to be given to you. Because a big part of mitigation of COVID-19 is actually a cleaning strategy. And so housekeepers are critically important in this fight against the coronavirus. And they often don't get the accolades that they certainly do deserve. And, and you know, nurses as well. And not just because I'm a nurse. Uh, I, I'm actually in private business, if you will, private uh, practice. And I, I have a clinical practice, but I also have, um, I do some project work and consulting. So I'm in a, in a different uh, category, if you will. So I'm not exposed to people who are acutely ill. Anyway, I have Don on the line from Edmonton. Hello, Don. Hi, how's it going this evening? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you, Don? Good. Good, well, good. There's a, there's a product called Ivermectin, and it's proven that it if you take a simple, simple application, which would cost less than a dollar, it will protect you against the virus for 14 days. Um, there's a <clears throat> Dr. Pierre Corey. It's Corey with a K, so it's K-O-R-Y. Mm-hmm. And he's promoting it. He actually spoke in front of uh, Congress in the United States regarding it. But they've been doing a lot of testing on it. And um, even if you come down with the virus and you take... One single application, it'll have you over it in a few days. Even if you've had it for three days or four days, it'll still have you. But the one thing is I don't understand is why nobody's talking about ivermectin. It was originally for parasites. Oh, it was yeah. developed in 1987, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2015. So, And Pfizer, <clears throat> I know everybody thinks they're a great company, but they just paid a fine of $1.3 billion in the States for, for killing millions of people with their products earlier. So I don't understand why everybody's jumping on the Pfizer vaccination shot um, thing when there's a far better product out there that's had years of being marketed. Um, Ivermectin, is, uh, I think they've distributed 3.8 billion uh, samples and it's being used in other countries right now. Yeah, I am familiar with it, but it was my understanding that the clinical trials didn't... Um, uh, Pay, you know, weren't, did not demonstrate the effectiveness or, or the efficacy against the virus um, as it was hoped. Uh, you know, there's no company, you know, when you get into the big corporations too, you know, uh, no company is perfect, <laughs> let me tell you. And oftentimes there are lawsuits and, and payouts and, uh, and, and certainly there are adverse events uh, from medications that can occur. And, and you know, there's lots of... Um, class action lawsuits who, um, you know, the lawyers go uh, after these big companies and uh, the payout is for the lawyer. Anyway, uh, Kelly from Calgary. Hello, Kelly. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm wonderful. Great. (laughs) Yeah, I went and got tested for the COVID uh, thing Mm -hmm. and I came out asymptomatic, which means I didn't have any. I still don't. So let's, let's just say, let's just back up there a little bit. You had a COVID-19 test? Yep. And it was negative. No, it came out positive, but then... Oh, it came out positive. Okay, that's a different story, my friend. Oh, and then, of course, it's, uh, as I stayed home for four, that 14 days or whatever it was, it, it, it cleared up. So now I don't have the symptoms. Uh, did you ever have any symptoms at all? No, none. Now, we have to view, because there's just such a high transmission rate with this particular virus, three times that of the flu, we have to view everybody as asymptomatic positive. And that's also very much a reality. Uh, many people test positive, but they, they never have any symptoms. So you stayed home for the whole 14 days. Isn't it uh, 
That not that fun? <laughs> I, well, you know what? I had no choice because the place that I go, actually, they finally shut it down for a couple of weeks. Oh. Because uh, there was an outbreak there? Oh, yes. Yeah, exactly. But so I, That's why I stayed home. Oh, but you didn't stay home to isolate and stay away from other well, people. Well, I did so you, that too. But yeah, I did that from Sunday to Sunday. Well, so. that yeah, that was good. It's not easy to do that, I am sure. And the CDC has actually reduced uh, or made recommendations to reduce that quarantine time from fourteen days down to ten days if you are asymptomatic, or seven days if you have. I think it's one, it's either one or two uh, negative COVID tests. So, I'm sorry that you had that, but you probably have some antibodies. Um, against the coronavirus. So that's a good thing. Uh, I just wanted to quickly mention that uh, the COVID cases in Canada, we've had about, as of about five hours ago, 461,000 cases, 373,000 people have recovered, and we've most sadly had 13,431 deaths. And every single one of those people is a daughter, a son, a father, an uncle, an aunt, a friend, a colleague, and it's just heartbreaking when we think of the reality of all of this. Um, I'm going to be talking about the vaccine, which we're, a lot of people are super excited about, and some are not. But I do have a question that has been texted to me. You can call me if you have a question for me. The number to call is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. That's one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. So the question is: palliative care and COVID. What is palliative care? To begin with, and I I believe this person is asking what is palliative care, um, kind of the definition. And palliative care is actually best defined as it's an interdisciplinary medical caregiving approach that is aimed at optimizing life and reducing the suffering of people with serious or complex health care conditions. It's often um, if it's often associated with life-threatening illness or at the um, end of life for people at the end of life. Um, and so it's a comfort type of care uh, for people. Um, it's a broad approach um, to chronic and ultimately uh, fatal illness. So, um, and it, it actually applies to people across the continuum of life, so across the age spectrum. And it is actually a type of medical care. It's the main goal of care, or it can occur in tandem with curative treatment. But it's, it often involves physicians and nurses and occupational therapists and physical therapists, often psychologists, social workers, chaplains and dietitians. And so it, it really is um, all-inclusive and multidisciplinary. Um, and it's a specialty, quite frankly, in, um, in healthcare. And the main focus is to improve quality of life for people who are either at the end of their life or who are living uh, with chronic diseases. And many, many people are living with chronic diseases. Um, it's commonly associated, probably more commonly associated with um, end of life, but it can be for a child. It can be for anybody at any age. Um, and the person uh, further to the text or from Steve, thanks Steve, uh, was asking because most COVID deaths are getting palliative care. So I think what Steve is trying to say there is that, that the people who are dying are on palliative care to begin with. And, and uh, I'm not sure I agree with that statement, Steve. I think people who are living in long-term care homes, um, that is their home. That is effectively their home. Sometimes the 
the family can't, um, you know, take the burden of an older person who maybe has mobility issues or maybe has urinary leakage, urinary incontinence, um, which is the number one reason for admission to long-term care homes. And uh, so it's not necessarily that and I, and I hope, and I don't think you were intimating this, Steve, that uh, these people don't matter anyway. They're getting palliative care. I mean, that's really not um, how we look at it. You know, every person matters and every single life um, is a heartbreak when, when you lose somebody uh, to COVID-19. There's, there's, it can be incredibly heartbreaking. Um, just getting back to the... Um, the vaccine. There were some, you maybe heard on the news that there were some allergic reactions that were significant enough. Um, they occurred to people who carried an EpiPen anyway. Uh, I've run some vaccine clinics in my time. And um, of course, one of the um, pro- things that you need in your toolkit is a, an epi- a number of EpiPens because people can have an allergic reaction. And yes, to these uh, vaccines, people can certainly have an allergic reaction. And so it's best to discuss if you have a history of allergic reactions, it's best to discuss your risk uh, versus benefit for uh, these vaccines, which I also wanted to say that there's probably going to be more people getting vaccinated because they're going to have some copycats coming in the spring, too. So more companies will come out with um, some vaccines as well. Alcohol use disorder, which includes a level that sometimes is called alcoholism, is a pattern of alcohol use that involves problems controlling drinking, being preoccupied with alcohol, continue to use alcohol even when it causes problems or having to drink more to get the same effect. It includes binge drinking or any unhealthy alcohol use. Joining me on the line is Dr. Nell Wyman. She is from Little Grand Rapids, First Nation, Manitoba, and she is currently working as the Acting Chief Medical Officer at First Nations Health Authority and is President of Indigenous Physicians Association of Canada. Good evening, Dr. Wyman. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you here on the program tonight. I, I am so happy when people share their stories in the, uh, to help others, basically which is mm-hmm. what you've said to do. Now, I love all of your posts on Facebook. We're Facebook friends, <laughs> but we've never met in person, but hopefully we will right. after the pandemic is over. I hope so. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I just have tremendous respect for you. And also I get a kick out of all your posts as well. I mean, they're just so varied <laughs> and fun and they cover everything from COVID-19 to baby Sawyer to <laughs> um, the realities of life, basically. Um, so I, it's great. I really, uh, get a lot of pleasure out of that. Um, so tonight you offered to share your story a little while ago, cause you, you posted an impassioned piece, uh, or you penned an, a passionate piece about your own struggles. Um, so tell me a little bit about that time right. in your life. So, yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm actually really fortunate. I'm Uh, over five and a half years now on my recovery journey from alcoholism. And um, I get to live my recovery and uh, be totally upfront about it with, you know, all my friends and family and actually the people that I work. And I think one of the things that I wanted to talk about um, in that blog that you referenced um, during the pandemic was you know, to acknowledge that this is a really difficult time for everybody, uh, but for people in recovery, it can be especially a challenging time, um, especially since at the very beginning when lots of, for example, the in-person 
um, you know, mutual help groups were on hold in person and people had to switch to a virtual way of supporting each other. And um, so in that blog, I really wanted to share my story of, of overcoming my own internal stigma when I was in active addiction, um, you know, that's what prevented me from coming forward to seek help is, you know, I'm a physician, so I thought I should know better. I should be able to get myself out of this situation, right? Absolutely. We we think that, but that's definitely not the case because we know that uh, it crosses all bounds, uh, addiction, alcoholism, um, you know, there's no nothing that provides immunity um, to it. Correct. And I just wanted to celebrate, you know, that um, I get to work in a place where my being in recovery provides valuable experience and that I'm, you know, that that's appreciated and I'm not demeaned in the workplace or that people don't treat me differently because I happen to be in recovery. It's amazing. I mean, everybody who is in recovery uh, deserves, uh, you know, a gigantic virtual hug <laughs> and a huge <laughs> pat on the back from afar, of course. Um, but it's a, it's a time like you you mentioned you were a physician, and so that probably added to your shame or your or the stigma that's associated with it. Um, was there something that uh, led you? Was life? Um, did, was becoming difficult? Was it, um, was there something you could pinpoint? Um, um, yeah, I mean, I think there was a whole number of factors that for me just, um, kind of collided all at once, right? Like I've always been, um, a pretty anxious person my entire life. Um, although I hide it really well uh-huh. and, um, I've always had uh, a lot of trouble sleeping at times. I've had problems with insomnia. So around 15 years ago or so, I went through a really challenging time where I lost my uh, best friend of 37 years to cancer, and my mother died about three months later. So it was kind of like I threw myself into my work instead of spending that proper time grieving. Mm -hmm. And then what I noticed was I was really, you know, I started feeling quite depressed and I couldn't sleep. And initially the drinking sort of took off because I couldn't, I was looking for a way, first of all, to get to sleep Mm -hmm. and a way to really not think about things anymore, right? Like it kind of becomes something that you don't, a drink becomes something you don't have to have it becomes something that you need to have. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I got myself obviously into, I got very sick and um, was kind of in and out of recovery for, I think, five or six years. And that was the stigma part, right? I thought I should be able to be able to figure this out myself. Um, and like you mentioned, there was a lot of shame because I was a physician and also because I happened to be a First Nations woman and you know, there's so many racist stereotypes about, you know, First Nations or Indigenous people and alcohol abuse that I was, you know, totally kind of full of self-loathing that I had become that racist stereotype. 
Right. It's such a story. Um, I mean, there's just so much to unpack there uh, that I, I want to step you back mm-hmm. to the anxiety that um, well, you said, but you, you hide it quite well. I, I find that. Um, I, I often say that anxiety is the most hidden disease, uh, you know, across, uh, basically across North America. You know, you definitely don't know who has anxiety or who is suffering from anxiety, but it can be debilitating and paralyzing really for people. It'll affect their relationships their job, um, their life, and anything to calm themselves down. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, it just was kind of like the combination of, you know, some, you know, my chronic anxiety, my insomnia, my grief, and then depression, Mm -hmm. all kind of collided and, and combined into sort of something that I really probably thinking back on it, it was, you know, in some ways almost inevitable that that's the way that I chose to not think and feel about things anymore. Right. And, and when we speak about numbing our pain, uh, we, mm-hmm. we numb our pain in many ways, shopping, sex, chocolate, alcohol, drugs, whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's, you also talked about going through uh, grief or not going through grief, going through significant loss of your best friend and your mother. Um, just horrific times in a woman's life in particular. I mean, it's bad for men too, but it's just really horrible. Um, and that grief, that processing, that pain is so important. Was that something that you have since done uh, in your recovery? Yeah, I mean, I think I've done as you know as good as one can, you know, like to the point where obviously it's not impairing my functioning anymore, right? But I was really fortunate, you know. Um, I uh, received the help that I needed um, when I when I needed it. Right. I almost didn't kind of want it because I was still in active addiction. Right. And I'm only laughing because it's sort of it's not funny, but it's just like sort of ironic that, you know, I had people around me who really loved me and mm-hmm. wanted me to get better. So I went to treatment. Um, I went to the Homewood uh, Treatment Center in Guelph. And honestly, I owe them my life. Right. Um, and they have special programs there for healthcare professionals or first responders. And so, you know, it takes that, it breaks that stigma down when you, when you meet other people um, who have, you know, also work in, in the same professions and you realize that you're not alone anymore. Um, so I was, you know, I really valued that experience. And I think that that prompted me to, you know, do the work that I needed to do and, you know, I can happily report that, um, you know, I'm over five and a half years sober. I'll be coming up six years in April. That's amazing. It's fantastic. Um, I want to ask you about rock bottom. Well, I want to ask you about, uh, you know, dispelling the myth there that healthcare providers or healthcare professionals, physicians in particular, or nurses can't suffer from alcohol use disorder. Uh these people are very much at risk for alcohol use disorder or alcoholism, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, even before I sort of entered a phase of, you know, drinking problematically, you know, the circles that I ran in and I I did some consulting work and I served on different boards and committees. And there's a, you know, I would say there's a fairly strong drinking culture. Mm-hmm. In medical circles and academic circles, you know, you sort of get together for cocktails before dinner and then you have wine with dinner and, 
maybe even something to top off the evening, right? So at the beginning, you know, my drinking wasn't really even sort of noticeable in the sense that I didn't really drink more than anybody else around me. Uh-huh. I was just surrounded by people who actually tended to drink a lot. So, um, yeah, so I think that that's yeah. part of it too is that culture. Absolutely. I one time dated a, a cardiologist who literally couldn't, he would get so drunk, his head would be on the dinner plate. And and nobody really thought it was strange, except for me, of course. Yeah. <laughs> that relationship was over fairly quickly. But it was yeah. just like, really? You know, and, and uh, I, I just didn't, nobody said anything. He was a brilliant cardiologist and, you know, top in his field at a, at a young age. He was actually older than I was at the time, but, um, you know, a fairly young age. He was in his, you know, probably early 30s and and you know head of one of the top um hospitals in the u.s and uh but he you know he's obviously in retrospect must have suffered from this um you talked about not wanting to get help but you did get help what what is rock bottom is that is that something that you can relate to is that something that um people reach is it different for everybody i think it's pretty different uh for everybody i mean you know, I've been to lots of different um, meetings and recovery and, you know, I've heard stories of people who have lost, you know, all of the, you know, the, the physical things that, that we need to, to be well, right? Mm-hmm. Like their housing or their job or, you know, I didn't find myself in that <clears throat> in that circumstance, but I can tell you emotionally, I would say that I, I definitely hit a rock a rock bottom because at a certain point I just felt that, you know, <clears throat> I didn't feel that I could kind of solve it any longer. I had just sort of kind of given up and thought, well, I guess this is what my life is going to be like. And then I guess eventually I'll just die from complications. Oh. And, um, you know, it's that hopelessness that you mm-hmm. can't get yourself out of. And, you know, I have to say one of the things I think that keeps me sober is, you know, every single night I practice, actively practice sort of mindful gratitude before I go to sleep. And mm-hmm. and I just love that feeling of waking up in the morning now and and not being, you know, hung over feeling clear headed like mm-hmm. it, that is such an amazing gift it's hard to describe to someone who's not in recovery mm-hmm. but if anybody's listening who's in recovery they know exactly what i'm talking about is that that's just a it's such an amazing gift to wake up clear um and ready to sort of you know show up for your life right absolutely um as i always say life is to be enjoyed not endured we all uh, have struggles what would you say to somebody who might be listening tonight who's struggling with exactly what you struggled with um you know is this the rest of my life is this just be feeling hopeless um what what would your words of wisdom be dr nyman wyman i would just say to that person you know there's there's so many things that can hold somebody back right there's that fear that you know i i had a fear that oh my god i'm never actually going to have a drink again and it's hard to think in those terms, you know, especially when you're actively ill. Um, so what I would say to somebody is just say something to one person, you know, go talk to one person mm-hmm. who you think might be helpful to you and, and hopefully that they can help get you pointed in the right direction. Because it's, 
it's really hard. You know, I had many good intentions to kind of, you know, stay on a path of recovery and I relapsed, you know, many, many times. And Mm -hmm. that's part of the journey too. But um, I guess, and, and the only other thing I guess I would leave that person with who's listening is, you know, that it, you know, it sounds kind of cliche, but you know, things do get better. They Mm -hmm. get better all the time and they, they continue to get better. Um, But you just have to kind of take that first step. Absolutely. Dr. Wyman, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your story and uh, it's, it's sure to help so many. And I love the fact that you share it across many different mediums. So thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I thank you. I, I want to get you back because we have so much to talk about in that regard. I got a question last week from a listener, and there's no one better to answer this question than none other than the director of the University of British Columbia Sexual Health Laboratory, Canada Research Chair in Women's Sexual Health, Professor, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UBC, Executive Director, Women's Health Research Institute. Dr. Lori Brado was on the line. She completed a PhD in clinical psychology from UBC, where her research focused primarily on psychophysiological aspects of sexual arousal in women diagnosed with sexual dysfunction. She's also the PI for the breast study, the Breast Cancer and Sexuality Treatment. Official title is Mindfulness-Based Treatment for Sexual Difficulties Following Breast Cancer. Good evening, Dr. Brado. Hi, Maureen. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thanks for joining me. I thought of nobody else when I got this question than you, and here it is. My husband and I have not had sex since I was diagnosed with breast cancer 10 years ago. And she has a little emoji with a tear. I had to go have a hysterectomy as well. And now I have no vaginal lubrications and it's like I have been closed up down there. Obviously I haven't, but it feels like it. I'm 51 now. What do you say to this woman? First of all, my heart goes out to her. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, a big part of our quality of life is, is the ability to in, enjoy sexual health in whatever way that that is expressed for you. Um, and that these kinds of sexual complaints are really, really common. We know after um, cancers, in particular breast cancer and gynecologic cancer, that, that well over 50% of survivors will experience ongoing and lasting sexual health concerns exactly like this caller has described. So no vaginal lubrication, which of course can produce pain. Um, There can also be a lack of interest or loss of motivation, and there can also be interference with arousal and orgasm. Um, And so there's lots of different um, parts of sexual function that that can be impaired. Now, the the good news is is that there are also lots of different parts of sexual function that can be addressed and treated. And in some cases, some of those parts can actually be completely improved. And so it really is about trying to identify what's the best treatment to address your particular sexual health concern. And uh, would you, so what are some of those treatments, uh, number one? But before we get to that, Dr. Brado, I have Joanne on the line from Surrey, British Columbia. Good evening, Joanne. Hello. 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 Um, I I had a question about um, the effects of Oh, sorry. The effects of estrogen on the um, on the urethra staying open, or the lack of estrogen, actually, because that happened to me. Okay, you had you had decreased estrogen in your urogenital tract. 
by um, hormonal estrogen. Mm-hmm. And so then um, my urethra stayed open. And I also have vaginal dryness as well. Uh, and um, But when I went on estrogen, then my urethra closed up or, you know, closed and acted normal again. Oh, so it I- wouldn't open and close. Right. It stayed open. Okay. So you had um, urethral pressure issues prior to, in addition to vaginal dryness? Yeah. Were you in perimenopause or menopause? Yes, perimenopause. Yes. Okay. Um, Dr. Brado? Well, I will address the second half of the question, which is the vaginal dryness, mm-hmm. um, Joanne. And we, we know that with um, when estrogen decreases, whether it's through natural menopause or um, through uh, surgery that involves removal of, of the ovaries, that that, that drop in, uh, in estrogen can certainly produce dryness for a lot of women. First and foremost, for the dryness, we want to make sure that every woman is using a topical lubricant, which you can buy over the counter, um, ideally one that is uh, free of perfumes and, and uh, additional um, additives, one that's natural, um, and that's going to make um, sexual activity or penetration more comfortable. Um, and then for some women, they also might require the addition of some kind of a moisturizer, and a moisturizer is something that's inserted into the vagina. Um, they're, they're often, although not always through prescription, there are some uh, non-estrogen-containing ones that are found over-the-counter. Best to talk to a qualified healthcare professional. Um, if that's uh, that might be your family doctor, if not, it might be a gynecologist, might be a sexual health nurse. Also, um, to make sure that you find out sort of the the, the safety questions that are um, might you might have for yourself. For the most part, um, those in, those uh, vaginal moisturizers are are very very safe because they don't get absorbed systemically into the bloodstream. So that's in terms of the vaginal dryness. And we know that when when that is restored with a moisturizer and with a lubricant, that it allows for uh, much more comfortable vaginal penetration. And and I just wanted to address the urethral dysfunction, uh, Joanne, because um, urethral closure pressure is important. And um, if it drops below a certain level, it's indicative of um, urethral dysfunction and or ISD, intrinsic sphincter, sphincter sphincter deficiency. And we, when estrogen decreases at midlife for women in the urogenital tract, that means it can affect the urethra, the clitoris, the vagina, the labia, um, and it can all become dry and not function properly. So um, as Dr. Brado spoke about uh, some of the, the treatments, the hormone-free personal moisturizers or low-dose localized estrogen therapy. So Dr. Brado, uh, thanks for that answer. And just getting back to the woman who... Um, emailed in last week after hearing you. She was diagnosed with breast cancer 10 years ago and she feels like it's all dry down there and dried up. Uh, Would you obviously would recommend some hormone-free personal moisturizers for you, uh, for her? Um, And would you also recommend vaginal dilators for her or localized estrogen for this woman? Yeah, great question, Maureen, and and definitely will want to make sure that she's doing all of this in consultation with a qualified healthcare 
professional, um, ideally someone who has some experience and expertise in the domain of sexual health. Um, so first of all, uh, um, first of all, lubricant, that's, I'm going, I, I think you and I both recommend lubricants to absolutely everyone, regardless of whether they have any difficulties with dryness or at <laughs> all. Pretty much. They just make sex more comfortable. So that should just be you know, put it in the drinking water. <laughs> and, and, so and it can standard. make sex more pleasurable too, which it I think sure women can. forget about. Yeah, yeah. Now the question about uh, a vaginal or a non-hormonal um, moisturizer for this woman, that certainly is going to help with some of the dryness. If there's pain there, that absolutely will help as well. And again, there are over-the-counter ones that don't contain estrogen, or there are ones that are are obtainable only through prescription that do contain estrogen. They come either in the form of a ring or a small pellet or even a cream. Um, And then, Maureen, your comment about what about vaginal dilators? And so for listeners who are not sure what these are, these Oh boy, they're a staple in our work in sexual health. They they um, they're phallic shaped. They come in all different sizes, usually starting from a very very small size that's about the size and length of your pinky finger. And women progressively and slowly, very gradually, will insert the the dilator into her own vagina, while at the same time she relaxes, practices being mindfulness and being very present. Um, And once there's um, minimal or no pain with the smallest one, she would then progress on to gradual uh, larger ones. So it's a a very nice way. So for the woman that uh, that had emailed in, I think this would be a a great suggestion as a way of easing back towards sexual activity again. Um, And those can be bought online or they can be... um, purchased in consultation together with a pelvic floor physiotherapist. And, and actually, floravi.com, I don't know if you know them, Dr. Brado, but they are so generous and they're so mm-hmm. interested in, in women's health and women's sexual health. And so they are offering uh, to give away like four or five uh, different products each night on this show. And um, oh, one of them is vaginal dilators. And so oh, if you feel you need those, um, you know, give us a call and uh, in the next segment and, uh, and then I'll send them out to you. Um, but I wanted to say as well that estrogen is the hormone regulator of the urogenital tract in the vagina. And when it decreases, as you mentioned, in menopause or with surgical uh, hysterectomy, for, for example, or you go into surgical menopause, that relates to or that decreases the elasticity, not only the moisturization, the lubrication, but the elasticity, elasticity of the tissues. And so that's why it feels so dry and tight down there. Would you tend to agree? hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. So it's sort of like an elastic band that's, that's no longer expanding and contracting. It just stays very, very uh, fixed in place, um, which that combined with some of the thinning of the walls of the vagina because of the decrease in estrogen can, can certainly create discomfort um, if, if not pain. And so pain with sexual activity is actually fairly common after treatment with breast cancer. And because of some of the um, maintenance treatments that women are on, whether it's tamoxifen or other treatments that, again, um, work very well to keep estrogen very, very low and therefore reduce risk of recurrence. But it does mean that a very common side effect is that ongoing inelasticity of the vagina combined with dryness. That's right. And then that can lead to that pain and that can also lead to lack of intimacy and issues in the relationship. And, and you know, we have to think of the partners uh, of mm-hmm. these women who are supporting 
um, these women who have gone through breast cancer treatment, you know, it's all, um, it's just such a challenging time. But as you mentioned, there are treatments. The other thing I just want to get in there is a, you, you've said a qualified healthcare professional. That's really mm-hmm. important because sometimes this area of health, you know, women can be dismissed or, or a lot of times when doctors are not educated in medical school about this area specifically, uh, they may not have the knowledge or understanding, but, but what would your advice be to somebody who potentially has been dismissed or um, their, their doctor doesn't understand it? Yeah, unfortunately, that that um, that does happen, um, and it is common, and it is totally unacceptable. Um, so, um, absolutely, would encourage the listener to not give up to ask for a referral to a qualified sexual health care um, uh, doctor um, if there's one in your area. There are also uh, those of us who are in private practice, whether it's uh, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a registered psychologist like myself. Um, those that uh, you can find directly. But yeah, don't certainly do not settle for being dismissed and certainly do not settle for any insinuation that, you know, sexual health really doesn't matter or that there's a certain age um, after which sex should become unimportant. What we know from the, the science is that sexual health really does continue to be an important part of quality of life for the, for the entire duration of one's life. And for some people, they'll actually say that their sex life gets better and becomes more important the older that they get. Like good wine. Now, how can people, <laughs> how can people get, in, uh, get involved in the uh, breast study? What, what would they do? Yeah, so very easy to find. We have a website that lists all the different studies um, carried out in UBC Sexual Health Research Lab. That's the lab that I run. Um, and the website is broadoladab.com. Uh, and when you go there and you click on studies, you'll see the full list. You'll see the breast study listed there along with a brief description. Um, And for anyone who's interested, you can click on the link to contact our study coordinator, Shannon. She'll um, very happily explain all the details over the phone. And the good news about the breast study um, is that you can receive treatment from the privacy of your own home. You don't even have to um, come into our center at all. And that was, uh, I guess, a tiny little silver lining with COVID is that we quickly shifted and moved all of our treatments to online, um, which has been an excellent way to get to women who live in all reaches of the province. It's fantastic. So very COVID friendly. Thank you so much, Dr. Brado. Really appreciate all of your information and your fine wisdom and experience. Um, you know, I, I was saying that I see a lot of guys um, in my virtual clinical practice. It just seems to be a rise in that. <laughs> that's the only thing that's arising, apparently. And that's why they're calling me. <laughs> but there's also an increase in the um, womanizer purchases as well. So they're, they're hopeful. They're actually realizing, hey, pleasure for the woman in my life is important. So it's, it's mostly men that order that. So ladies, I hope you get that in your stocking. Um, anyhow, you can order that if you like. But uh, there's something else that um, I often recommend to a lot of the men that come to see me in my virtual clinical practice. And in addition to, because their lives seem to be chaotic, they they seem to not feel that great about themselves. They seem to, these are just some common um, things that I've noticed about them. They don't feel that great about themselves. They're trying to impress other people. They worry about what other people think. And I tell them, don't worry about what other people think because nobody's thinking about you. Nobody actually knows you're living. They're thinking, 
thinking about themselves. That sounds harsh, but it's not. It's the truth. And so we're, we're putting all these performances for people who really are just thinking about themselves. So don't even worry about that. And so then, you know, I try to have them to, you know, try to deal with their anger issues, try to deal with their drinking issues, try to deal with their pot smoking issues, all of their issues. And, um, and then I try to get them to meditate every day and to try to work toward nine minutes a day. It's actually brain cell changing. If you can meditate, mindfulness meditation, nine minutes a day, you can do it whenever you like, before you go to bed, when you get up in the morning, practicing gratitude is also really helpful, but they have a lot of struggles with this mindfulness meditation. And that's why it's called practice because you have to practice at it. And a lot of these guys' minds are going a mile a minute. And, and so there's really no time for reflection, even though we've had a pandemic and we've had so much time at home, but still they're all, they've got anxiety and they're nervous and they're not getting any sex and Anyhow, so there's this book that I have found that I've been recommending to my patients lately, and it's called The Daily Stoic, 366 Meditations on Wisdom, Perseverance, and the Art of Living. It is by Ryan Holiday, and who is also the best-selling author of The Obstacle is the way. Um, so every day it's there, you read a passage from it. And so for today, I just want to tell you, just even when we're talking about today about sex and having sex the whole, your whole life, or, you know, it shuts down at a certain age. It doesn't. And so this every day I find that what I read here is relevant. And so here is uh, December 13th. It's just a number. You aren't bothered. Are you? Because you weigh a certain amount and not twice as much. So why get worked up that you've been given a certain lifespan and not more, just as you are satisfied with your normal weight. So you should be with the time you've been given. Marcus Aurelius, Meditation 649. And they talk about age as just being a number. Some people lie about it. Others are upset about it. But just really about enjoying life. And uh, I don't have enough time to read it. But my point is that, you know what? You can have sex as the 80 and 85-year-old couple. Any time in life, you can actually perhaps have more fun. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.